Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 45 to verse 53. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned or resolved together to kill him. Let's pray. Father, we come now before your word. We remember your word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's revealed in the scriptures. And Father, we commit this time to you. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, fill everyone here with the Holy Spirit. As we consider these words that are written, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what we read, help us to think and reflect. Speak through my stuttering words and voice, Lord, in my weakness. And may what happens here be bigger than just what people can do. And Lord, we ask that your son would be glorified and honored. Your saints would be encouraged. Those who don't believe would see. And Lord, that your name, most of all, would be glorified. And I just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, The Logic and Purpose of the Cross. Now, the reason I've entitled it The Logic and Purpose of the Cross is because the passage that we just read gives us important insight into the divine meaning and intention of the death of Christ. You see in this passage, Caiaphas, the high priest in the year that Jesus was crucified, he makes an explicit statement about the death of Jesus, doesn't he? So he's, he's talking about Jesus' death, and then John provides a commentary on that, a marvelous commentary which sheds crucial light upon the meaning and the purpose of the cross. So here's 
Caiaphas' words, and, we, and John is saying, you need to pay attention to what Caiaphas just said. You need to not miss that. Don't just skim over it and read that thinking, oh yeah, some guy who hated Jesus just said something about how we need to kill Jesus. That's not, John's saying, well, put on the brakes, slow down, stop. Did you hear what he said? Because it sheds immense light upon the meaning and purpose of the cross. Now, this isn't the only place in the Gospel of John where John, in his writing, sheds light on the cross. In fact, I think we could, we could rightfully say that the whole Gospel of John, all of it, sheds light upon the cross and what happened in the death of Jesus. Sometimes, of course, more implicitly, other times more explicitly. Here's an example of an implicit place in the Gospel of John that's shedding light upon the cross. When Jesus made wine from water, one of his, his first miracle in the Gospel of John. And we're to understand when Jesus turns water into wine that Jesus is giving us a sign that he is the one who brings the promised covenantal blessings to God's people. I mean, just as God promised he would, God promised he's going to bless the people and wine is a sign of blessing and Jesus made an abundance of that wine. And so we, he's giving us a sign that says, he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one that is going to bring in this blessing. Implicitly, of course, we understand he brings this blessing to us through his death. By giving his life for us, we receive this life. And so it's implicit. It's shedding light on his purpose and his coming. Other passages are more explicit, like this one, where we're directly talking about the death of Jesus. For example, chapter 1, in the 29th verse and the 36th verse, John the Baptist says something about the death of Jesus that's more explicit. And he points to Jesus and gives this testimony about him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now any reader of that who has any understanding of the Old Testament and the Jewish background realizes that John the Baptist is saying, here is a sacrificial victim who's going to take away the sins of the world. That's an amazing statement about Jesus and what he came to do. In the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says that, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So there again, he's referring to his death by talking about his flesh and blood being given for the life of the world. He's giving us some information and shedding light on what he came to do and what the meaning of his death is. Even more directly, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He tends his flock, but how does he do, how does he do that? He tends his flock and cares for his flock by laying his life down for the sheep. So in Jesus' mind, his death is not some accident or tragedy or um, what happened there, you know? That wasn't part of God's plan. But Jesus came into the world to give his life for the sheep. And he says this, actually, the Father loves me because of this. The Father delights in me because I lay down my life for my sheep and because nobody takes my life from me. 
So right there, he says, nobody kills me. I lay down my life of my own accord, and I take it back as I will to take it back. And for this reason, the Father loves me. So here's some explicit light shed on the cross. So, so when we think about the cross and when we think about the death of Jesus, we shouldn't be thinking, oh, they got the better of Jesus, right? Oh, they ambushed him. Oh, they cut short a wonderful ministry. We should realize Jesus laid his own life down willingly for the life of the sheep and he came out of heaven as the bread of heaven to do that to give his life. And how does he do that? As a sacrifice, as a lamb who's bearing the sins of the world. These are amazing statements and teachings of what it means. And so we're going to see more as we go on in the Gospel of John. Jesus will talk more about his own death. But here we have as well an important light shed on the death of Christ from a very unusual source, an unlikely source, from Caiaphas. Friends, the crucifixion of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. If you were to clear this wall and get all the Bible stories and put them on little cards, all the stories and teachings of the Bible, and you were to arrange them on the wall, and you were to arrange them in such a way that would indicate their importance or sort of the trend of where the story of the Bible goes... The crucifixion of Jesus would be dead center, no pun intended. It would be right in the middle. And everything else would be going to that or coming out from that. Amen? Kind of like on a, on a wheel with spokes, the death of Jesus is the center and everything else is important, but it's spokes that are connected to that center and revolve around the center, which is the crucifixion of Christ. The, the cross of Christ and his crucifixion is the event, according to the Bible, where God ultimately reveals himself. So if you tracked with God throughout the Bible, but you didn't understand the cross, you would not know God, right? You'd be like the Pharisees who knew a whole bunch of true things about God. If we as Christians sat down with an Orthodox Jewish person today, we'd be able to talk to them about God and agree on so many things but we wouldn't agree on the crucifixion of Jesus. And because of that, they fail to understand the true nature of who God is, the true heart of God, the true mind of God, because that is revealed in what Jesus has done for us in the cross. This is what the Bible teaches. The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So apart from knowing this, we don't know God. The cross is the place where God purchases our salvation. It is the place where God declares his righteousness according to Romans chapter 3. So apart from the cross, we're not even sure that God is a righteous God. We're confused. We know that God proclaims himself to be a righteous God, but apart from the cross, we don't get it. Why is, if God is righteous, why does he allow certain things to happen, right? But the cross reveals to us, according to Romans 3, his righteousness. God is constantly pointing to the cross, amen? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is always pointing to the cross? 
And for all eternity, we will behold, we believers, we saved, we redeemed, will behold, according to the Bible, and worship the Lamb who is on the throne, the Lamb who was slain. Amen? He is the center of heaven. One Bible theologian says, the center of the whole universe is the cross of Calvary. And so, brothers and sisters, it is fitting and right for us to learn all that we can about the death of Christ. We should be hungry to learn about this crucifixion, everything we can know, everything the Bible has to say about the death of Christ. We need to learn about the center. As we learn about the center, as we learn about the cross, the more we see and understand the cross, the more we will understand God, and the more we will have peace in our hearts. I hope you all see that. So let's keep that as our focus and our center. And as we read this passage and, and examine it, let's be eager to learn about this center. So I've divided the sermon up into three sections. First, we're going to see the context of Caiaphas's statement that John comments on. Secondly, we'll consider together the logic of the cross that's revealed here in this passage, the meaning, the logic of it from God's perspective. And lastly, we'll close with looking at the purpose of the cross. So first, the context. Look, let's look again at verse 45 and 46. So we see that Jesus has done something that is causing a reaction in verse 45 and 46. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So what did, what did Jesus just do? So the context here is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus up from the dead. This is what they're, they're reacting to. And the resurrection of Lazarus is not only a fantastic display of, God, of Christ's power and divinity. So Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is not meant to merely show us, wow, look how powerful Jesus is. But as we saw in, when we examined this story, that it is a sign or a signal that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the conqueror of sin, death, hell, and Satan for us. Amen? He is the one that God has sent into the world to deal with sin, death, and hell for us. And you'd think, in light of this wonder and this sign so awesome in power and hope for us, you'd think that everyone would believe, right? You'd think if Jesus reveals himself to be that powerful to raise the dead and to be the one who conquers death for us, that we would all be excited about it. But what do we see repeatedly in the Bible and what do we see here in this passage? Is everybody excited about this miracle? No. We see, as usual, when Jesus reveals himself, there's a mixed reaction. People are divided about Jesus. And friends, that's how it always has been, and that's how it always will be. Do you believe that? As Jesus reveals himself to be the wonderful Savior of the world, not everyone is excited about that. It was such when he was here on the earth, and it continues to this day. There's a division. Jesus causes division. 
This was, of course, no surprise. Please turn with me to the book of Luke and chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we see that the Bible prophesied that Jesus would be a divider and a revealer of hearts. Luke chapter 2, verse 34. So here we have Jesus as a little baby, and there's this man, Simeon, who's in the temple. And Simeon meets Joseph and Mary with the baby, and he prophesies over Jesus. And he prophesies that Jesus is this wonderful Savior. God is fulfilling his word and giving, a, giving Israel redemption and a Savior. This is something that you'd think everybody would be excited about, like Simeon is excited about. But Simeon prophesies, not everyone's going to be excited about this. And look, look at um, verse 34 with me. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. So right there he says, Many are going to rise, many are going to fall, and his wonders are going to be opposed, which is what we see exactly in our story in chapter 11, in our passage. A.T. Robertson comments that Jesus will be a stumbling block to some who love darkness rather than light. That's what Jesus himself said. I have come as light into the world, but the world loved darkness rather than light, and therefore they hate the light and won't come to the light. Robertson goes on to say, Jesus will be the cause of rising for others. Jesus is the magnet of the ages. He draws some, he repels others. I think that's a fantastic image. Think of Jesus as a magnet. He's put into the earth. And there's some people that are just attracted to Jesus and others that are just repelled by Jesus, depending on whether they're north or south, right? That's a great picture of this. And what we learn here in John 11, and brothers and sisters, think about this. This is a stunning miracle. Jesus raises a man from the dead after four days of being dead. How many of you have ever thought in your heart or heard people say, yeah, I think I'd, I would certainly believe if God would just do a dramatic miracle, right? right? Man, I wish God would just like, do a miracle like in the, in the gospel days or in the days of the exodus, because then I would certainly believe. But what is the lesson we learn from the gospel days? And what is the lesson we learn from the days of the Exodus? Do these wonderful, powerful displays of the supernatural power of Christ and God, do they always draw people to him? No. So we learn that miracles are not in and of themselves enough. There's a subterranean level that's underneath faith or unbelief, and that is our hearts. John Calvin comments, Wicked men are so far from profiting by the works of God that the more they are urged by their power, so much more are they constrained to pour out the venom which dwells within their breasts. So basically, the more God pressures them with his miracles to believe, if their heart is wrong, and they don't fear him, then the more that will just squeeze the venom out of their hearts. In other words, 
In this story, those who believed in Jesus when they saw this miracle were those who already were admiring Jesus or were not hostile to Jesus, were not predisposed to reject him. They revered him and admired him. And those who didn't believe after seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead, like the Pharisees or those who followed them, they already hated Jesus. They already disliked Jesus. They didn't have a stomach for him. Because this is not all in a vacuum. It's not like, who's Jesus? I have no idea, but he just raised a guy from the dead. It's, I hate this guy Jesus because he preaches that nobody is good. He preaches that the Pharisees and the best of us are unrighteous. And he preaches that these harlots have hope by simply trusting in him. I hate this guy. And so they already don't like him. And so as he's doing these miracles that prove who he is, they're just trying to find ways to get around these miracles, right? Oh, he, he does miracles by the, by the power of the devil, right? We won't deny he does them, but he does it by the power of the devil. So you'll believe what you want to believe. And friends, if you have no stomach for Jesus, the Bible says you have no stomach for God. Because Jesus is the Son of the Father who perfectly reveals him. And if you hate him and his word, then don't delude yourself thinking, I hate Jesus, but I love God. No, that's not true. If you hate Jesus, you hate God. And if you love Jesus, you love God. So Jesus reveals our hearts and our stance towards God. So we see that they went and told the Pharisees. Now look at verse 46. These ones who didn't believe went and told the Pharisees. 47, excuse me. Look at verse 47. And this is the first time that the Gospels tell us that a council was called to deal with Jesus. Now this is, and this is not just any council. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the highest council in the land of Israel at the time, which means that they took seriously the problem of Jesus. They knew that Jesus was a problem and he wasn't going away. And after the raising of Lazarus, they realized, oh my goodness, if we don't do something about this, everyone's going to believe in him. So they convened the highest council in the land to deal with him. If you look at this story from an earthly perspective only, you might be tempted to say, wow, the Sanhedrin. These are the big important people of the land. They're going to be dealing with Jesus. Whoa, that's a big deal. These are the big wigs. These guys are somebody. And they're being called to deal with Jesus. I feel bad for Jesus. Poor Jesus. He's in big trouble now, right? (laughs) But if you look at it from heaven's perspective, I mean, I guess that might be like, oh dear, they're going to deal with, they're calling together, you know, their Oval Office. Eli's in big trouble, right? But if you look at it from heaven's perspective, what we see here in this story is little specks of animated dust have formed a committee to stay the hand of God. That's what's going on here. We're going to stay the hand of the Almighty God. Let's form a committee and figure out how to do that. Little specks of animated dust. Friends, when you fight against God, when you fight against God, 
and I mean really fight against him. You bring to bear all of your wisdom or all of the collective wisdom of, the, of humanity. You bring together all your power or all the collective power of humanity. You will lose. And more than that, you will be humiliated to find out that all of your scheming and all of your fighting was actually used by God in his plan. Try your best. You will lose. And realize, he had me the whole time in his plan. That's exactly the point of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. And what does God think about this? I mean, these are the kings of the earth. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and have them in derision. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles actually quote this passage, right? The apostles quote Psalm 2. And they say, why do, they, why do the leaders and the heathens, why do they rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? And the apostles actually apply this prophecy, this Psalm 2, to those who set themselves against Jesus to kill Jesus. So they apply it to the, the rulers of Israel. They apply it to Pilate. And then the apostles in Acts 4 said, you know, the rulers of Israel, the rulers of the Gentiles, when they by wicked hands crucified Jesus, they did nothing more than what you predestined them to do. So you'll be humiliated knowing even your fighting was in his plan. Let's see what they say in this council. You can see in the council that they're distressed, can't you? They're struggling with what to do. They're, they're freaking out. They start by saying, what are we doing? They're critiquing themselves here. Up to that point, they haven't formally done anything. They haven't had a formal resolution against Jesus. So basically they're saying, what are we doing by doing nothing? We need to change our strategy. He's performing many signs. These signs are so convincing that if we don't oppose him, everyone's going to believe. And the reader wants to say, if they're so convincing, why don't you believe, right? And in verse 48, they say, if we let him go on like this, and this shows their blindness, they think that they're the ones letting Jesus go on. Up to that point, we have seen people try to kill Jesus, but he always just slips out of their grasp, right? Jesus will say something and they'll try to kill him, but he'll escape. Now they're saying, you know, our policy of just kind of leaving it to God, like all those other false messiahs, I mean, tons of false messiahs had arisen already, tons more would, but they all come to nothing. And they're saying, you know, we can't continue with our strategy of, let it, of just letting it pan out and come to nothing. This isn't going to pan out and come to nothing. And so we need to change our tactic here and do something officially to stop him. What is their fear? Who are they ultimately worried about here? The Romans. 
In Jesus' day, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. And their fear was that if the people followed Jesus as the Messiah, they believe he is the king. And the messianic belief is that the king of Israel, the son of David, will come and will rule the world. That means he's, the Messiah is going to overthrow the Romans. The Messiah is going to set up the kingdom of God. So if the people follow him, there's going to be an, a revolt against Rome, and Rome's just going to come and wipe us out. And you know what? That was a legitimate fear because Rome would do that. And we see that Rome did do that not too much longer. So they're worried about Rome and what's going to happen to them if Israel follows Jesus. So this is the context in which Caiaphas makes this incredible statement. Jesus is, uh, his popularity is such now that the evidence is piling up beyond the tipping point. People are now going to believe in Jesus in mass amounts. The whole nation is going to believe in him. They have to do something about it or else the Romans will come and destroy Israel. So now the second part of my sermon, the logic of the cross. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, and I think, and most commentators think that what John means by that year, he means that fateful year, that epic-making world-shaking year that the Lord Jesus died and rose again. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And Caiaphas now stands up in this council and he says, you know nothing at all. It's pretty severe, isn't it? According to Josephus, the Sadducees were a rude bunch. The Caiaphas and the rulers in the Sanhedrin were actually Sadducees. And Josephus says they were a rude bunch even to themselves. And I think we see that here. Now, has it ever struck you as strange what Caiaphas says here? You know nothing at all that he criticizes the rest of them because when you think about it, what they're saying is basically the same as what he says, right? They're saying we need to do something or else the nation is going to be destroyed. And Caiaphas says, you don't know anything at all. We need to do something or else the nation is going to be destroyed, right? It's kind of weird. So why is it that Caiaphas is, you know, rebuking them or criticizing them? And I think the answer to this question or this strange way of, what might seem strange to us is that what I detect in this text is that the council is distressed and freaking out. And I get that sense that like, we, what are we doing? We need to do something or else if we don't do something, the nation will be destroyed. And Caiaphas seems to me cool, Right? Caiaphas seems to me almost glad, like he's speaking with a bit of a smile on his face. There's no sense in Caiaphas's words of distress. In fact, I think what Caiaphas sees here is an opportunity. And the key word in his statement is expedient or advantageous. So Caiaphas is actually saying, okay, I get it. I see that something needs to be done. I see that the Romans will destroy us if we don't do something about Jesus. But don't you guys see how advantageous this is? Don't you guys see this is a rare and golden opportunity for us? Why? Well, for a couple of reasons, I suspect. One, this is a golden opportunity for us to show the Romans 
how loyal we are to them. Because Jesus, this man who clearly has a lot of things going for him as a messianic candidate, he's going, if, if he is going to rise up, he's going to you know, rise up against Rome, we're going to say, no way, we side with Rome, not with you. Right? And you see that in chapter 11, actually. In the, in the case when they're before Pilate. Pilate says, what has he done? And they make these statements like, hey, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's, right? We are friends of Caesar's. Don't let him go or else you'll, be a, you'll say that you're an enemy of Caesar. Or Pilate says, what do you want me to do with your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. So I think they're seeing here an opportunity to really show Rome that their loyalty lies with them. Or by putting Jesus to death and sparing the nation from destruction, they're going to solidify the respect of the people of Israel. They're going to they're put Jesus to death. That'll be the end of Jesus. And then all the people will realize, oh, you know what? Our leaders really were right. Our leaders really were looking out for our best interests. And they'll be even more respected after that. So I think the point is, as Caiaphas says, why are you freaking out? Yeah, we've got a crazy crisis moment here, but... Here's an opportunity for us. This is good. Caiaphas is the high priest. He is the spokesman for the council, the Sanhedrin, and he is the one who represents Israel before God. He wears the tribes of Israel upon his breast, and he goes into the presence of God to represent them. He's the embodiment of Israel. And here's the point. In that council, the high priest of Israel says with a gleam in his eye, it is good for us that Jesus dies. It's an amazing thing if you think about it. He's saying the death of Jesus is good for our nation. And when John hears him say that, John says that was not simply Caiaphas speaking. That was God. John says, did you hear what Caiaphas just said? The high priest of Israel just said, it's good for the nation that Jesus dies. The death of Jesus will save the nation from perishing. And John says, that is not simply Caiaphas speaking. That is God. So John is saying, take a, take a pause here and listen carefully to what Caiaphas has just said. Because he just prophesied he just spoke by the Spirit of God. And we've got something to learn here from what this high priest has said. And notice John, the, the text doesn't say that John simply interpreted Caiaphas's words that way, right? The text doesn't say that Caiaphas said that and John interprets his words in a different way. The text actually said that Caiaphas spoke these things not of his own initiative, verse, uh, f- verse 51 that God actually put those words into his mouth. He did not speak of his own initiative. He was literally prophesying by the Spirit of God. And we see here a, myster- we see here a good example of the mystery of God's providence, how God speaks by people and speaks by prophets in such a way that doesn't uh, nullify their own personality or their own responsibility but he no less can speak through them. This is a wonderful example of that. How God is sovereign and rules over all things, but in such a way that doesn't violate us in any way. And 
Caiaphas has said something really wicked here, hasn't he? If you think about it, he's saying something horrendous. And he's guilty for that, and he's accountable for that before God. But yet it was prophecy. God was speaking through him. So we should be amazed at how God works by his spirit in, in our lives, in our hearts, in our words. Calvin says, with the same voice, Caiaphas blasphemes and also prophesies. It's amazing. So in this blasphemy, this unlikely place, let's look into this into this statement because we have a window into the logic of the cross, friends. You want to understand something of what happened on the cross? Well, we need to understand the words of Caiaphas. Because in Caiaphas's logic, he had a logic about it, right? He's, he's thinking about the death of Jesus and saying, this is going to accomplish something good for us. He's got a logic. And in his logic, we have a mirror by which we can see God's logic. That's what John's saying. What is Caiaphas's logic? Here's Caiaphas's logic. We're in a situation such that if Jesus is allowed to live, the nation will perish and die. That's the situation. We didn't go looking for it, but that's what's happening. If we don't do something about Jesus, if, he, if we just let him be, the Romans will come and destroy us. But if Jesus dies, the nation will be allowed to live. And that's just the situation. It's going to be one or the other. Either Jesus dies and the nation lives, or the nation dies and Jesus lives. That's it. That's just the nature of the situation. So therefore, the death of Jesus is for the life of the people. That's Caiaphas's logic. So out of the high priest's mouth comes these words, the salvation of Israel depends on the death of of Jesus. That is the teaching, friends, of the entire Old Testament. That is the law, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood, the prophets, all of that amounts to the salvation of Israel depends upon the death of Jesus. And we have all of this encapsulated and distilled in the words of the high priest that year. It's just truly amazing. And since Caiaphas is the one who finally puts his authority down and decides that Jesus must die, we can rightly say that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed by the high priest, which is really an amazing thing. In one sense, who killed Jesus? The high priest that year, right? It's amazing. But do you, see what, do you see that that statement of Caiaphas, which amounts to the death of Jesus saves the nation, on that fateful year captures everything that the Old Testament law and ceremonies and prophets is saying. That's it. And so in verse 53, they proceed to, they resolve to kill Jesus. Now Caiaphas, of course, doesn't know any of this. He's not aware of how profound his statement really is. Caiaphas failed to see who Jesus really is. To Caiaphas, he's just a man. One man should die. He doesn't understand that this man that he's talking about is not only a man, but he's also fully God, the Word who is with God in the beginning. And Caiaphas fails to see that there's a far greater peril 
that the nation is facing than the Romans, right? And what peril is that, brothers and sisters? That is the peril of God. Now, how many of you acknowledge that there is a divine peril? Do you believe that? That there is danger and a threat to our lives and to the nation of Israel and to this world by God. Now, if you, if you violate Roman law and you revolt against the empire of Rome, you're going to face the wrath of the Romans. And if you violate God's law and if you revolt against the kingdom of God and the reign of God, well, the Bible says you're going to face the wrath of God as well. And the wrath of God isn't arbitrary. God is not an arbitrary ruler like the Romans were. God is the rightful holy, just, creator of the world who owns it, and all of his laws and commandments are good. And the Bible tells us if we violate God, we're violating not some arbitrary law, we're violating what goodness is. And we will experience the wrath of God. And that's the true peril. That's what we're in danger of when we sin. The divine logic of the cross is like the logic of Caiaphas. We are in a situation that is such that if Jesus doesn't die, we're going to perish, right? There's no way out of this. That's just the nature of the situation. The wrath of God is over us. We are under it, and we can't survive it unless Jesus dies. And if he dies, we can live. It's one or the other. Now, why, why, is it, why are we in this situation, which is, is one or the other, Jesus' death or our death? Because as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have sinned? How many of you continue to sin and violate goodness? Do you ever notice yourself sometimes and just think, man, I am not a good person? Have you ever noticed that? I hope you do, because that's what the Bible says about you, by the way, and about me. It says you're evil. And that doesn't mean you can't do good things. I mean, Jesus said at once in the same breath, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the fa your Father in heaven, who isn't evil, give you good gifts? He's saying, yeah, you, you know how to give good gifts to your children. I mean, you look at the world and you see parents who care about their kids, but you're evil. And you're evil because you do not love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you do not love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because you know all the commandments, and there's a lot of them, they all hang on those two. They're all a commentary and expression of simply caring about God and caring about others. And your life basically just reveals that you care about yourself. And that you don't care about God and that you don't care about your neighbor. Ultimately, you care about you. And that's ugly to God and evil because he's commanded you not to do those things and yet you've done them in violation of what you know is right. All have sinned. All are sinners and lawbreakers against God. And the Bible tells us not only that we are sinners and that we've all got sin, that we've, got, that we've all committed sin, the Bible tells us that not anyone is going to be righteous by what they do. So the Bible basically says it's not just that you have a bad past. You know, you've got a lot to overcome in your record. The Bible says you've got a bad heart. 
The Bible says you've got sin that dwells in you and try to be good and you'll see that you can't. And that doesn't mean that you're not responsible. You can't because you're an evil person to the core in your heart. Try to be good. Try to love God with all your heart. Try to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You're going to realize that you're a shameful person. The problem is you, not God's law. The problem is you don't have a heart to do it. And so we deserve death. And we deserve judgment. What do doctors think about cancer? This is something that's a problem. It's not supposed to be here, right? Tumors growing on a person's body, and they're going to cut it out. They're going to get rid of it. That's the right thing to do. Well, in, in many ways, human beings who have revolted against God and sinned and disrupted the good order of the world and the beautiful uh, reign of God, we've revolted against that. I think the Bible, if it was speaking in modern terms, would say human beings are like tumors. The way that we're living is wrong. We're not listening to God's word in his way, in his laws. And God then rightfully should remove us. And if you think, man, Eli, that's harsh. Well, Jesus said something very similar to that, didn't he? He said, people are like tares, weeds, right? There shouldn't be there. They're a problem, and it's good to get rid of them. And God has in the past given his judgments, poured out his judgments upon us, God's judgments, friends, my point, are not cruel or arbitrary. Oh, he's such a mean God for judging us. Like, like the Romans, you know. Why do we have God over us? That kind of stinks. But from heaven's perspective, it's these people stink, you know. And the wages of sin, what we deserve rightfully, what we should get, what is our just deserts is death. The wrath of God is our due. And friends, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand your sin and that you deserve the wrath of God and it's actually a good thing that we're punished by God, then you will not understand the surprise and the wonder of the love of God and the grace of God and the gospel. You won't get it. If you think, Eli, you're too harsh on people. We're not evil. We don't deserve hell. We don't deserve judgment. Then when I tell you the gospel, hey, did you know that that God sent his son into the world to save you so that you won't perish? You might say, oh, that's kind of, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I guess I'd do that too, you know. God loves you. I love me too. There's no problem. There's no wonder. There's no surprise, which is what the gospel is all about. John 3.16, we love to quote, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, same word here, perish, but have everlasting life. But you've got to remember right before that he said, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, so whoever believes in him will not perish, but everlasting life. What's that story about in, in, in Moses' time? Well, it's actually about God's judgment, isn't it? It's about people rebelling against God and deserving judgment and God sending fiery, poisonous serpents to bite and kill them. And in the mercy of God, he sends salvation. He says, just believe and you'll be saved, right? You'll be saved from what? An arbitrary punishment? No. A cruel punishment? No. 
You'll be saved from the damnation that you deserve. You'll be saved from what you deserve by believing in Jesus. So friends, if you feel yourself, you know, if you, if you get a sense of your sin, you feel, man, I deserve judgment. How can God love me? Remember the gospel. Yeah, you do deserve judgment. Don't let anyone say you don't. But don't let the devil lie to you and say, you deserve judgment, therefore God doesn't want to save you, right? Don't listen to the devil's lies. Say, I know I deserve judgment. I get it. The Bible makes that perfectly clear. I am bad. I am evil. I deserve his wrath. But the good news of God is that there's more to God than that. And that God himself loves me and that's a surprise and a beautiful wonder because the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says people wouldn't do that people might lay their life down for someone who's good but God demonstrates his very own love for us his very own love in that while we were yet his enemies and sinners Christ died for us in Ephesians chapter 2 Paul tells us that we all were children of the devil and children of wrath. And, and he tells us how we deserve judgment, we deserve wrath because we're evil in our minds and we're evil in our deeds. And then he immediately says, but God, who is rich in his mercy, wherewith his great love that he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he raised us up together in Christ, for by grace are you saved. The whole thing is surprising. It's supposed to be. And so we must understand the logic of the cross. And we see it here in Caiaphas' inspired words. There is a real danger. That's the situation. And there's no way out of that danger apart from the death of Jesus. That's the logic of the cross. That's the divine logic of the cross. The wrath of God. And there's no way out of it but the death of the Holy Son of God. And brothers and sisters, because God gave his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and because it's an either-or situation, either Jesus dies and I live, or, I, or he doesn't die and I don't live, those who believe in Jesus and put their faith in him, the Bible says, will not perish but have everlasting life. So I'd like to encourage everyone here who has put their faith in Jesus Christ that according to the logic of the cross, if you put your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross by taking your place as a sacrificial atonement, atoning sacrifice, all of your sins, past, present, and future, laid upon Jesus, and he suffered the penalty that we deserve if you put your faith in Jesus, I'd like to encourage you that you will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It's not in doubt anymore. Your sins are forgiven because the blood of Christ was shed. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him is forgiven. And not only just forgiven of their past record, but even justified before God. Meaning God now looks at you and says, this person is righteous and it's completely apart from any works or law-keeping or obedience that we do. Otherwise, we could never be righteous. Amen? If it depended on our own performance, we could never be righteous. So this is the wonder of the gospel, is that the death of Jesus actually takes away my sins, actually makes me acceptable and 
blameless before God, and by faith I won't perish because I have that blameless now forever. You are forgiven. You are his child. Because he died, you're saved. Give him glory for that, Christians. Give him praise every single day. And remember that you are righteous before God and will not perish because he died. That's good news, amen? And we have peace with God through Christ. And I'd like to just close this morning with a brief thought on the purpose of the cross. So we've seen the logic of the cross, why he died and how that works. But the purpose of the cross we see in verse 52. But we'll look at verse 51 again in verse 52. Now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So we have a very interesting statement of purpose here. Jesus died in order to do something. Now we may be surprised by how this verse reads. We might expect John to say, now Jesus did not die for the nation only, but for everybody. It's kind of what we might expect him to say, right? After saying, he didn't die for the nation only. He died for everybody, died for the whole world. So it can be surprising. He doesn't go in that direction, actually. That's not the direction John takes us. That's not the thought that's in his mind. So what is John saying? Well, I'd like to submit to us this morning that the point of this verse is not to make a statement about the extent, as the theologians say, the extent of the atonement. It's not to make a statement about ultimately who did Jesus die for. That's not what John is getting at here. We know from the rest of the Bible that Jesus died for the whole world and he offers salvation to everyone. We know that. And John actually says that in his epistles. But if that's what John was saying, if the purpose of this verse were simply oh, I want you to know that Jesus didn't just die and shed his blood for the sins of Israel, but he also died for the sins of the whole world. If that's what John's point was in this verse, then really this verse is just talking only about possibilities, meaning Jesus died for absolutely everyone, and now it's possible for everyone to be saved if they believe in him. It's not a statement about what will happen. It's just a statement about what now can happen because Jesus died for everybody. But brothers and sisters, I'd like to submit that this verse is about much more than just possibilities. It's, it's, it's not talking just about who Jesus died for that enables them to be possibly saved. This is not just about what Jesus makes possible, but what Jesus will in fact accomplish. This is what I believe this passage is talking about. When I'm talking about the purpose of the cross now, I could talk about many things but I mean the effectual purpose of the cross. What God purposed to accomplish by the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus will, not might, but it will accomplish that. And this is what John is saying. Jesus died and he will accomplish what? The salvation of the nation as God promised, right? Either Jesus lives and the nation dies or Jesus dies and the nation lives. 
And God promised and prophesied that the nation will live, the nation of Israel and the prophets. And so Jesus died that that would be accomplished and that he will gather in from abroad, from the Gentiles, the children of God. Jesus says in another place to bring the sheep that are in a different fold into one fold. How many of you believe that's going to be accomplished? It's not maybe, right? It's not Jesus dies to gather in the, the children of God scattered, from, scattered around the world, but they never come, right? He died to do it, and it will be done. So I believe this is what John is saying. Because Jesus dies, here's a prophecy. The nation will live, and God, by his Holy Spirit, will call his sheep throughout the world. They will hear his voice, and they will not perish. We find the same idea in the book of Ephesians, that, brothers and sisters, it's God's cosmic purpose to unite Jew and Gentile together in Jesus Christ. And he will do it, amen? That's what Ephesians says, that this is the mystery and the purpose of God, that he will unite them in one in Christ. It's not a possibility or a maybe or I hope this happens. But Jesus died on the cross for this purpose and it will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is the ultimate accomplishment of the cross. That God brings glory to his own name on the cross revealing his righteousness because Jesus had to die for our salvation There's no other way for a person to be forgiven or saved or righteous before God because God is a God of righteousness. He can't change who he is. He can't ignore who he is. And the cross also reveals God is a God of love for sinners and amazing grace. And the cross accomplishes the glory of God by revealing who God is. And so you see in the book of Revelation, Jews, Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation united together singing praise to the lamb who sits upon the throne and worshiping God who lives forever and giving him all glory and all honor and praise. The cross takes away boasting from men and it gives all the glory to God. Amen. So this is the purpose of the cross and God will accomplish that. I believe that's what John is saying in verse 52. The cross of Christ is the center of Christianity, of the Bible, and of the universe. May we understand its meaning and logic. May we partake of its salvation by faith alone. And may God be glorified by Christ crucified both now and throughout all ages. Amen. Please stand with me and we'll pray. Father, we love you and no words can express how truly amazing you are in every way. And we love you for the cross. We love you for the hope that the cross has given us. Father, how it reveals your your righteousness, our sin, and your love and grace. And Lord, I just thank you for this time of the preaching of your word. And I just pray that you would help us to reflect this morning and as we go from here.
upon the meaning of the cross and what the cross will accomplish. Lord, I just pray that you would um, help us to hear these things. Break through our thick heads. And Lord, help us to glory and be amazed at the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.